build business with passion and let data tell your story. If you are a founder having difficulties handling investors' curveball questions, or an investor wondering how to find the next golden startup deal, then this is the podcast for you. Hi, I'm Parul, your host for this episode of the Dash Investability Podcast. Thank you, Marcus. Uh, thank you, everybody who's joining us today directly here or through the media, other media channels from social media. I'm founder and CEO of Dudash, uh, which Michael very nicely introduced to everybody. My background is uh, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've built uh, multi-million dollar companies uh, in the past and invested uh, privately in uh, many startups as well for more than 15 years. I have experience in M&A and basically the entire shebang. So I'm excited here to share my knowledge also with you. And uh, today my guest is uh, Joseph. Uh, Soto, who's managing partner at 186 Ventures. He's a former founder of startups himself and served both as CEO and in CEO role. So we have the complete uh, plethora of experience today here. He also mentors and supports founders and startups. He's a mentor at Techstars and uh, a founder who has now turned as a VC. So switch to the other side of the table. I will now hand it over to Joseph to tell us more about himself and uh, hear from him. Right. Thank you, Pearl. And thank you uh, for having me today. Uh, so my background, I guess, personally, I, I was the firstborn in my family here in the U.S. Uh, most of my family still resides in Italy. I grew up in a town uh, just outside of Boston uh, basically my entire life and went to school locally here in Boston uh, my entire life. Shortly after my undergrad, I uh, started my first software company in the group video space. So the company was called FAM, F-A-M. We built multi-party video infrastructure uh, that would es- essentially allow any group messaging vehicle, think group iMessage, to transform itself into a group FaceTime. So our consumer experience has powered that. Uh, we had north of 7 million users, built that company over the course of about five years. And then I sold that to DraftKings in Q2 of 2018. And I built that company alongside two amazing co-founders that I would say did, did the real work. Uh, then during my time at DraftKings, I played uh, roles on the product leadership team and thereafter on the strategy team leading up to the IPO. And that is when my good friend Julian and I started to angel invest together. Um, and we, you know, kind of through our founder networks and whatever else founders would come to us or would be referred to us. And, uh, over the course of about two and a half years, we invested in about 31 early stage, uh, all tech companies and most of them at the pre-seed and seed stage, a couple of exceptions later stage and, uh, following my time at DraftKings, uh, so I continued to angel invest under the brand 186 ventures with my good friend, Julian, and then. We, uh, I joined one of our early angel investments, Python Technology as their chief operating officer. I uh, was there for a couple of years, helped them stand up a product organization, uh, played a role on the board, did a bunch of other things. Uh, and then going into 2021, I decided to you know just focus full time on investing with my good friend, Julian. We institutionalized our brand, 186 Ventures, through the first vehicle, which is a $37 million pre-seed seed fund. Again, investing across early stage software, primarily industries that we focus most of our time on, but not exhaustive. 
are um, fintech, future of work, workflow, automation, software, um, Web3, and healthcare. And then, of course, there's the digital uh, consumer digital component as well, given our backgrounds. And we've done about 12 companies so far out of fund one. Average check sizes are usually in the quarter million to a million and a half dollar range. And it's been a lot of fun. We're a small, lean team. And um, the last point I'll make on, on this for 186 is we, we like to think uh, we take a very differentiated approach to venture capital relative to most VCs. You know, we were founders and operators one day. Uh, I like to think we can empathize on a, on a, at a different differentiated scale. And we like to get to work. So even before we invest in companies, uh, we like to streamline our diligence process with helping companies gain more customers, right? And that way, in the event that we do want to lean in and commit, we're usually in pole position because of the value that we've already brought to the company. That's just one example of how we like to operate. Uh, we're doing this to, to, to build an enduring venture brand. Awesome. What a journey, Joseph. Congratulations on that, first of all. Thank you. Um, I mean, it's, it's been uh, really insightful in terms of how you went about right from building businesses, getting exits and different type of exits, and then taking that uh, initiative to become an investor in personal capacity and now doing it in a more structured fashion as a fund. So what was that pivotal moment for you when you thought that I want to now set up this fund and uh, why is startup investing important for you personally? Sure. So <clears throat> I would say it was probably a, a combination of things uh, that led to why uh, my, my, my good friend Julian and I decided to you know, go from part-time angel investing to full-time venture, raise a fund and all that. Uh, I would say for me personally, um, it was one, I started to recognize that there's a, a, it's a different level of endurance needed being an operator and a founder and that of an investor. Not that we don't work very hard at 186, but it's a different level of pressure where instead of having to become a domain expert in one domain, which is what you do as an operator or a founder, you get to really kind of spend time on multiple problem sets in any given month, any given year. And there's something, uh, and there is something compelling about that. And I started to realize that about myself personally going into the spring of 21 or going into 21 in general, I should say, where, you know, now that I started to kind of as an angel investor, although it was only, you know, super part-time, I started to realize, wow, I'm having a lot of fun learning about new problem sets, going very deep. And I never looked at myself as a, I always look at myself as a curious person, but not one that would enjoy going instead of a mile deep on something, let's say, you know, a few meters deep on something. And that was some, that was the realization that then kept popping into my mind, uh, especially during my work at Bison uh, at the time, which I loved. And I still, you know, love the team there. I just started to realize, huh, my energy levels are higher when working with entrepreneurs on the investor side. So that was something that really started to, to go deep in my head. And then separately, the track record. Uh, we mm -hmm. found that as angel investors, less about the returns, because one, I can argue, anyone can argue that over the last few years, with the exception of the last, let's say, maybe three or four months, everything was up and to the right, but more so about how founders were talking about us. 
we were getting a bunch of feedback and we still do get a bunch of feedback, at least on the angel portfolio that although we wrote a 25 or a $50,000 check, we were adding as much, if not more value than some of the VCs writing half a million, million dollar checks. So that made us think, huh, we're doing this part-time when we have time uh, and we're, we're pretty you know, competitive to the value added nature that a lot of other VC, some of them established brands are adding. So we figured, hey, something we could be really good at. In terms of why is startup investing personally important to me, uh, I think it's what drives the world forward. Um, There's many different ways for how the world um, can better itself and how we can better solve some of the biggest challenges we have uh, in terms of, you know, mid-level businesses not having access to financial services they should have access to or people not having access to the you know housing that they need to live and so on. All these little mm-hmm. things, whether they are first world problems or not, uh, are being pushed forward with technology, right? Maybe 50 years ago, less the case. Now, I think it's unequivocally, unequivocally the case. Uh, and we are particularly good at you know software and tech. So it's mm-hmm. a perfect alignment of being able to push the world forward. Awesome. So, uh, you know, being an investor myself and uh, doing my own assessment for the startups, and that's what we try to structure with the due dash. Uh, we have a five team model for assessing startups, such as team, timing, traction, technology, CAM. The key skills of a founding team are always there, and they are, you know, critical traits uh, which are important for a make or break of any company. And there are some time, you know, some early red flags and things like that. So what do you think, uh, what makes uh, an ideal team and a great founding profile for people to come together? Sure. It certainly depends on the industry and there's no one similar team, but uh, to what you just alluded to, there are patterns uh, for sure. What, What we like to call kind of a key ingredients check on the team. We'll start there. And then in this, maybe we can talk about some of the red flags. First, we like to think about founder market fit is what we call it. Why is a founder or management team particularly well positioned to tackle the problem that they're tackling, whatever the industry might be, right? Uh, And that the key is whatever the industry may be. Because if you're talking about social media, well, the best social, the biggest social media companies were created by people who had zero, uh, Mm -hmm. I would say experience or little experience, but the fit was there though for what the end audience was, right? If you're talking about a B2B enterprise financial services company or fintech company, yeah, they probably should have a bit of fintech experience. So we do kind of, we look at a quick glance at things like that. But then going deeper, because anyone can look good on paper, right? Anyone can come out of Goldman Sachs to start a company and go into the fintech world. And it's easy to think, wow, they were at Goldman. So they must have the network and the know-how. But so to go deeper, we like to look at indicators. So whether they had previously started a company or not, you can see, you can ask questions and get to know them in ways to learn about who they surround themselves with, right? So if they, maybe they weren't, they never started a company before, but they built teams before, you know, what are the teams that they built? Who are the types of people they've brought around them? What do those people think about them? Uh, because one thing that is very important to, to particularly the CEO of a startup is have they demonstrated an ability to recruit people 
not only equipped for the job, but better than them. And, and how does that operational harmony work? So we really dig into that. Um, and, you know, it's harder when the founders are younger or have limited operating experience because, well, there are no indicators of that, but things around that, right? Because it's really about recruiting, being able to be a talent magnet. Then also too, we like to dig deep on the, the founding team's understanding of, of the, the, the landscape. Um, you wouldn't believe how, um, and I say you wouldn't believe in, in, in a nice way, but you wouldn't believe how many founders don't have an exhaustive or, or comprehensive understanding of the competitive landscape. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying like, you know, MBA business school SWOT analysis stuff, right? I'm just talking, you know, being able to, to think about the world they're building in in a way that demonstrates just a, in a, a, a next level understanding of where the space and market is and where mm-hmm. it's going. Uh, and you can quickly poke holes where, when they don't understand that. And the biggest red flag for me is when I know more than the founder on that, because if I'm not the one building the business and I'm not that smart. So if I know yeah. more than the founder in terms of who the players are, where they may not be doing as well, that's the, a very quick red flag for us to, to, to pass on a deal on. Uh, but I would say those are the biggest things. Uh, and then integrity. Um, integrity, I know everyone maybe says this, but we, we act on it where we have passed on deals where we felt that we, there wasn't a strong integrity uh, kind of signal or there were things that came up in getting to know the founders where we don't really care about how much revenue they have or anything like that. Um, so I would say those are the biggest things. Awesome. At a high level. So, yeah, I think that's a great um, segue to my next question, which is uh, how do investors do market research and analysis? So what are your methods of assessing the opportunity? And specifically when founders are going to the VC path, I mean, there are different conversations at different levels and we can come to that probably later on. But how do you go about assessing an opportunity? Sure. So I would say we, we, so let's talk a little bit about what we've institutionalized at 186 uh, that applies to pretty much any deal we look at. Uh, And then we can talk about maybe specific items uh, that we look at. So we, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, we have what we call an internal 186 expert network uh, that is constantly growing and it is made up of founders, operators in industries that in some cases, other investors, although we, we don't, we spend more time talking to founders and, and operators in the industries that we invest in. Uh, so because that is where we learn the most, it's where we do all of our diligence on a particular deal. Um, so we, on, we are constantly thinking of how we can expand that and we have internal uh, goals on uh, how many conversations we need to be taking on a monthly basis, right? Uh, so we, we're, we live and die by that system because that is in many ways uh, the outside of founders coming to us for funding, but that's the oxygen, right, for us. Mm-hmm. Now, what we look for in companies and, and kind of how we dive into them is we, let's say we're looking at a company uh, targeting the developer tool space for the enterprise world. Um, so they like to look at companies who have at least 100 employees, mid to large enterprises um, in the U.S. 
we would look at, all right, who do we know that founded companies similar to this or in adjacent spaces or operators at or founders and operators of companies that could be a customer of this? And we'll just go talk to them. Um, we will spend a lot of time just building out what the appropriate list of folks are who we who can educate us, number one, but then number two, just kind of be a potential customer of this, right? And that's usually, it kind of goes back to, in my introduction, it's a, it's a great way we like to add value in some cases where it works out, where we're not only talking to these people for diligence, but they may be customers. So that's how we look at more, how we do our market research is we have this passive engine that's kind of going on in the background. And then at mm -hmm. the same time, specific to companies that we're diving in on, we then will go talk to the appropriate folks to help familiarize ourselves. And then of course, there's all the background Google searches and all that we might do. But I would say mm -hmm. talking to people in the industry who are customers are the best ways to, to come up awesome. with um, market. Great. Can you share some insights on startup valuations and, um, you know, how does a due diligence vary for different stages of a company from pre-seed to seed, series A and so on? Sure. So for us, it tends to be a bit more, it's important to contextualize for us where we are at the pre-seed and seed stage. So some of these companies have no revenue at all. Some may have a half a million, maybe a million dollars on the high end in some cases mm -hmm. in recurring revenue. Um, we Things are very binary in our world. Uh, we underwrite businesses to think, how can they get to 100 million plus in ARR in a reasonable amount of time, right? Because it's really hard to think from our space, the difference between a company that can get to 50 to 100 million and a billion in ARR. I mean, it's impossible to tell. Uh, but if you can get to that escape velocity, uh, the probability you break into that 100 million ARR, um, you know, kind of level is much higher. So that's what we look for uh, in a very simplistic, you know, standpoint. Now, to in order to drive the 50 to 100x per company returns we look for, of which you know, maybe if we're lucky, we'll have one, maybe two of those in a portfolio, right? Uh, which is what I would say a lot of seed funds, you know, try to do, um, the valuations obviously need to be low enough. So, you know, there are some cases where, you know, we may go above, a, we may be okay with going above a 15 or $20 million post-money valuation. Although in today, with everything that's happened over the last, you know, three to six months with various consumer headwinds and everything else going on macroeconomically, I would argue that right now we're seeing a lot of, sub $10 million post-money valuations, even for businesses generating um, a fair amount of revenue for the seed stage. So you might have half a million dollars in um, in ARR, but you're still only getting an eight post. Um, six months ago, that might get you a 30 to $40 million post, which is crazy. So I, I think um, the way we think of valuing things are, you know, in, in, appropriate to you look at some like later stage multiple stuff, but more peripherally, it doesn't really drive our valuation calculus. And then of course you look to downstream investors to your point. So series A and series B investors, how are they thinking about it? And that might be a bit more telling for the audience today, given how binary things are for us. Meaning, you know, for us, we invested a 20 or 30 post or a 10 post. It doesn't, it's binary. If a company reaches $10 billion plus valuation, it doesn't matter 
where are you investing? For example, Stripe in 2010, their seed round was at an 80 pre-money valuation. Think about that. Right after the biggest financial crisis in the history of time, um, debate questionably, and they raised at a very premium seed price, right? I don't think anyone cares they paid an 80 pre, right? Given now they're trading at 75 billion. But that's a, a huge exception. Now, Series A, Series B investors, they're certainly tightening up. I, I think that um, seeing a lot of Series A's get or get done at anywhere from a 30 to 50 post money valuation, 50 on being on some of the high ends. There's still the exceptions that the 100, 200 million dollar valuations, the Series A, those are always going to continue to be the case, uh, especially by nature of how much private or dry powder there is on the sidelines um, mm-hmm. from some of these larger VCs. But things are definitely trending lower. And I think that things are going to trend even lower, uh, at least in the early stages, because it's going to take longer for companies to grow out, um, for them to reach certain growth markers on revenue. And I think in many ways, putting my founder hat on, previous founder hat on, it's healthy. Uh, What happened in the last two, three years, I think was very unhealthy for founders, especially inexperienced ones that had more money than they needed or should have had. And it drives the wrong type of operating uh, behavior that then takes years to undo. But anyways, I'll I'll pause there. I can go on for hours. (laughs) I understand that. And I think uh, it's an important, uh, you know, question to ask, uh, especially with the timing risks for a startup that founders need to be aware of, but especially looking at the current market scenario where the funding is squeezing or drying out for many, with many startups not having enough runway and even if they're bootstrapping or cutting down on expenses, what would be your suggestions for them to pursue or prolong while keeping their sanity? And especially at this point when it is a make or break uh, for revenue generation and they have to turn their traction into repeatable business model, like you mentioned, like very early stage, having zero to best case scenario, one million revenue. But uh, how should they think about it when to make, and it's a hard case to make for fund, fund further funding piece without having a solid plan for further monetizing when especially valuation is also getting squeezed out. And even if the strategy is solid, what, what would be your advice keeping all these moving parts, sure. keeping sanity? Yeah. You know, at the seed and even series A, and in some cases the B, but let's stick to seed and A, things are mm-hmm. so early that nothing else matters but customer traction and customer proof points. So what I would say to founders building at the early stage, eliminate all the noise, valuation and all that stuff. <laughs> it's binary. You're either going to have a big outcome or you're not, right? In the nature of tech. And when I say big outcome for a founder selling your business for $5100 million, 50 or $100 million is a big outcome uh, and, it, and it can really transform their lives. So I would say in this context, we'll throw that in as a big outcome as well. So when you look at it that way, you, it all comes down to, are you creating value for your customers? Uh, and I would let, if anything, that should scare founders is if they don't have that. Uh, now, if you're not able to raise money or whatever else, it probably is because you don't have that or you are being unrealistic with your expectations on valuation. The latter is very easy to fix. Be realistic. Uh, whether you're giving up an extra 5% or not of equity 
ultimately it will not matter. You're either going to have a successful outcome or you're not, given the the risk reward ratio of building tech companies. So what I would think about and what I would advise companies that may currently be having a tough time raising money or are thinking about raising money in the future, just focus on the indicators coming from customers uh, and try to build process and systems that allow you to iterate as quickly as possible on when you receive negative feedback from customers. And this happens at all. You can apply this framework and model of thinking to any phase of the product development cycle. This could be when you're pre-product, post-product, it doesn't matter. There's a customer in a loop at some point if you're building a rational business. Uh, because VCs, at least the ones that I know that are good, they're just going to go talk to customers. Um, so ultimately, this whole valuation and running out of money thing, being able to raise money, it centers around, do you have a business that creates value for customers or users? And if you laser focus on that, uh, you're pro- and you just maniacally focus on how you can get better at that through the products you build, the conversations you have, through your business development practices, and so on, the probability that uh, you run into some of these problems that you're, 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 you're mentioning is much lower. Now, if you rate, there are some of these scenarios that I don't even have an answer to or advice for, such as, you know, you raised at five times of evaluation that you should have last year and you're running out of money. And the only way you're raising money is at a fraction of that valuation. That's tough. I don't really have good advice for that scenario. Um, and maybe some growth investors might have some advice for that because they're they're used to down rounds, you know, coming more often. Uh, but that that's where things can get tricky because you might have a good business under your belt uh, with good customer feedback, but the ownership structure and the incentives around the table for investor stakeholders and even employees holding options becomes very very difficult. So that's where it kind of comes back to my first point. Be realistic with valuations because that could doesn't matter how good of a business you have that could really destroy uh, a lot of the incentives and enterprise value um, that you worked so hard to generate. Awesome. Um, how should a founder transform a rejection into an opportunity to build a relationship with a fund or any investor that they've been talking to, especially in the current times when they'll be hearing possibly more no's than yeses. Sure. So I'm gonna answer this one way in a direct way and in an indirect way. Mm -hmm. The direct way is um, really ask pointed questions. They're uncomfortable questions to ask investors, especially ones that may give you a rejection. Uh, but you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Just ask pointed questions around why they're passing. Be relentless about why they're passing. VCs love to give BS reasons for why they're passing. Why? Because they like to avoid conflict. Um, the last thing you want is to have a disgruntled founder out there that thinks you were unfair to them or whatever else, right? So the point is, is good VCs will put the effort in to give constructive feedback, but it takes time. And a lot of VCs don't like to give time to founders that they passed on. Uh, we, we, don't, we like to give time. So we, we give very constructive passes to all of our founders that we, that we don't work with. Um, now, so as a founder, ask pointed questions. There's always a real reason. There's always a real reason and you either got the real reason or you didn't. Um, and I think the, if you get the real reason, the probability 
that you can build on an enduring relationship with that VC is much higher, right? In some cases, and this is going to dovetail into my indirect way of answering your question, in some cases, it's just not possible. That is where targeting the right VC is very, very important um, because you, unless you are an exception company that every VC should look at, but again, we shouldn't, let's not you know, base the discussion on exceptions. Mm-hmm. You may be signing yourself up for just developing the wrong relationship before the pass even comes. It's very important to talk to the right profile investor uh, and to ask the right questions early on where you may find early on in the conversation before a pass even comes your way that it's just not the right fit, DC, right? Um, give an example. You're building a consumer social product uh, and you're talking to a VC and you ask, Hey, what kind of traction do you consumer social meaning like a mobile app, like Facebook, right? Uh, or Snapchat, mm-hmm. whatever. And you ask, what do you look for? I like to look for certain meaningful amount of scale and a lot of growth. If you don't have that, you can try to develop all the relationships you want in the world. You will never get money from that VC until you have that. So it's very important to, to create the right profile. Um, and spend time in building relationships with the right investors because sometimes the relationship will only get you so far, right? Because of some preconceived rules and they may have in their mind of when they like to get involved with certain companies. Gotcha. So on Dudash, we have a structured company profile, secure data room for startup founders, starting right from their one pager pitch checks and then if this is the right fit, then the engagement can be built from there and startups can progressively share their business plan, other company documents, and they can also share monthly or quarterly investor updates right from the Dudash system altogether. So there is a complete ecosystem of investor relations right from one single system. And for investors, they receive right from deep flow through due diligence with their team and portfolio management in the system. So the startups out here, just go ahead and set up your free fundraising profile and investors can just simply register and access deal flow and perform due diligence and potentially track portfolio if your companies are there. So from a due diligence standpoint, um, Giuseppe, do you have like a checklist or a bunch of questions that you ask or rate? Uh, A lot of people say team, product market fit, and you, you said that as well. And I would like to know from you, what do you consider what's important for yourself personally and 186 ventures as well? And what are the triggers for investment decisions for very early stage companies, especially you're betting on founders who are zero revenue, great ideas, great teams, and good opportunity. Sure. So I would say uh, there are some that, are universal across all the companies that we look at, uh, regardless of industry. And then there's some that are universal. Um, so I would say on that end, first on, on, on a universal component, um, we like to really understand why a founder is building the company that they're building. Um, because there, there's something so irrational about building a startup. Uh, that if, if you're not doing it for the right reasons, um, the probability that you build for a very large outcome is just very small, right? Uh, so we like to really dig deep, regardless of what the industry is, 
of why a founder is choosing to spend their time working on something that is statistically improbable. Um, so we, you know, some of the questions we ask are like, how do they see the world changing with the product and technology they're bringing to the market? Uh, and how, you know, kind of where, how are they doing it in a way that's so differentiated that, you know, with proof points to s- support their argument, uh, are they doing it where current incumbents aren't able to do it in a way that they're doing it? Um, then I would say, you know, specific to the, some of it's specific to the industry, right? So if we're looking at enterprise SaaS, uh, we like to look at, you know, what's the net revenue retention look like, for example. Um, that's an important quality uh, for us. We like to look at, you know, what is, is there any concentration risk within their customer pool? Um, you know, are, are they, is all of their revenue premised on, you know, one or, or two big customers, or is it, you know, evenly spread out where, you know, there's, there's attrition risk isn't that meaningful. Um, we also like to look for uh, unit economics and cost effectiveness. So not necessarily EBITDA to start or profit to start, uh, but we like to kind of, you know, think about is this on a trajectory to, uh, be a sustainable business model, right? Uh, or is it something that can just flake out from a profit standpoint and, and really not be sustainable where, you know, when you hit capital market headwinds like we're hitting today, you're then going to get wiped out. Uh, and then in terms of, so, so it really is depending on the industry, what types of questions you like to dive in on, um, on that and some, on some part of it, some part of it, there are universal ones. Now, if we talk about uh, what drives decision, in our world, it there's no, I would say, turnkey way of doing it. Um, for us, it, it, every deal is different. Every deal has different decision points. But I would say there is, I would say, customer conviction and whether the team possesses certain qualities that we like to see in founders, like they're building the company for the right reasons. Like they're really thinking about things in a way where they're obsessed with the problem and they want to change the world and the actions show it, right? That's the key, the actions. A lot of people will say the right things, but then when you compare it with their actions, not so much the case, right? Um, so you want to change the world of media, but you vacation half the year. Well, you're not really doing it the right way, right? You're not really putting your bill. You're probably not setting yourself up to change the world. So, there's that component, like which is very binary, and we can usually weed that out within the first, you know, maybe two or three conversations with founders. Uh, and then the customer conviction. If we feel as if, um, or the, the the metrics are at a point where the company can benefit from using capital to grow at a steep enough trajectory from there, we'll then usually get involved. And again, that really depends on. Um, what your key metrics are, uh, it, it vastly yeah. differs. Yeah, I think that's a very important point that startups need to think about today with the sensitive markets, the impact that impacts also their CAC and LTV and revenues and uh, staying competitive in general. And while balancing all these variables and building the next disruptive company for an ideal team, uh, how, how would you kind of Think about that from a go-to-market strategy for those startups, and especially emerging startups. They should consider. 
so so how do they think about building out a team depending on yeah. the industry to be clear so so the markets are sensitive and you know the go to market strategy has changed uh, from what it was because the behaviors are changing and they have changed quite a lot and uh, the the ltvs the cacs and the revenues they have all been impacted continuously in the last 3 years we've seen a lot of ups and downs so how do you what are your suggestions to the companies in general to keep all these variables in balance because i, I don't think the parameters are the same uh, okay. anymore. yeah yeah no you're right i i i like to think of this as uh preventative um what do i mean by that i think there are certain mechanics of course that matter um where um you know you you want a certain cac to ltv ratio whether it be 3 to 1 or whatever else or 1 to 3 in that case um and, and all that and and you want to make sure you know you're hiring the right people and all that and you're not overspending or whatever else but setting all that aside which is really human error you can fix those things very easily overnight and I'm not going to spend time on those things cuz they're really simple i think it's it's worth talking about and this actually goes into what we look for in companies is the business model sustainable and where are the proof points to show it i'll give an example uh if you are building a consumer mobile application and all of your or majority of your growth stems from advertising spend you're you're setting yourself up for disaster because the moment that cost of capital goes up like right now uh, or the moment new entrants come in that can do the same thing you might think you have the best marketing person there's better marketing people out there uh you're going to be toast now if you focus on organic traffic and it's hard to get organic traffic and I'm not by no means am I trying to discount the difficulty of it but if you work hard and put in the time to build the brand do all of the experimentation needed on linkedin on google it's very tedious no one wants to do it but yeah. that is how you build organic traffic it doesn't matter if your marketing budget is 0 or 10 million you're going to have a user base until when times are tough mm-hmm. so it really goes back to make sure if you raise money or you build a company based on high, you know intent uh, capital intensive business that you are spending the money only when you figured out the the organic component mm-hmm. of things because then when the moment gets tough it's going to be really hard to correct that mistake um too many times mm-hmm. people think that oh I'll just you know build a user base with money uh, but then what happens to your point is the moment things get tough uh and you mm-hmm. can't sustain it um then you're in trouble Awesome. So I'm going to ask you some quick rapid fire questions uh, and your answers should be in short sentences and then we'll go over the audience questions. You ready? Yes. So give us an example of great 1 minute introduction that should contain the elements that you've been talking and when the founders reach out to you and they have to introduce themselves to you what should be those that 1 minute pitch should look like. Sure. um why they are uniquely positioned to be working on the problem relative to everyone else because the chances are someone else has the same exact idea is nearly 100% um why they need capital 
um, and, and, and why they can't do what they're doing without capital, right? They don't have to say why they can't do it, but why do they need capital? Going back to the example we were just talking about, you need capital to advertise your mobile app. That's not a real reason, right? Um, because you can just do things to grow traffic without capital. Um, and what proof points you have. Uh, it doesn't have to be that you launched a product already, but what proof points do you have that are highly differentiated uh, that speak to why um, we should prioritize your deal uh, for capital in the short term and not the long term, right? Because we, we like to focus on companies that are ready for growth today. It's just the nature of our business as VCs. So what are some of the latest trends and technologies that you're watching and feel strongly about? Embedded fintech for sure. So I do I strongly believe in a future and this kind of intertwines with the Web3 crypto world. Um, but I do believe in a future where every business uh, will offer financial services. And we're already starting to see that with a lot of the embedded fintechs being built. Again, some of them within crypto, some of them not. Um, and uh, another trend that we see be, you know, is workflow automation uh, has mm -hmm. a long way to go. There's some you know, early winners in UiPath and so on, but we still have a very long way to go to making the workplace more efficient. Uh, there's a lot of clunky developer tools that have come into play over the last 10 years that now make it very difficult uh, for teams to manage. Gotcha. So share one of the craziest idea that was ever pitched to you. I would say um, homes not homes being built in a factory. Okay. Why was that crazy? How was that crazy? Because you're it's really at least at the skip doing it in a smart home capacity, to be clear, in the way that we want to do it at scale. Mm -hmm. It's it's interesting and unique to conceive of why that could actually happen in any region. So it was um, the way that they were doing it was was pretty interesting and it caught me off guard. Okay, who is your childhood inspiration? Um, I would say there were different phases for sure, but I always admired. Bill Gates, I would say, not because of the wealth he generated, but um, being someone who grew up, you know, being technical and so on, uh, it was always difficult to find role models that would also, you know, were also really good at business. Uh, and I always looked at what he did, where he was, you know, he is one of the best technologists of our time, um, but he also was a very shrewd business person, uh, relentlessly yeah. shrewd. And it's, that combination is really interesting to think about. Yeah. So what qualities do you value most in professional relationship? You mentioned integrity, but other than that. Um, straightforwardness and bluntness. I, I, I really admire, and more so selfishly because it's, it's, it makes things much more efficient in terms of conversations. But I think it's also because it's telling of the individual, right? I think people that are more straightforward in a thoughtful manner, right, uh, are confident in their understanding and abilities of things, and it then makes it easier to work with them because you're, you know, you you feel like they're they're really bringing something to the table that um, is is productive and, and impactful. Very insightful, thank you. And what are you currently reading? 
I'm currently reading Amp It Up by Frank Slutman. So he's the, I think he's still the CEO of Snowflake. Yeah, um, yeah I think he's currently the CEO of Snowflake still. Uh, and it's a great book on just, you know, hyper growth and increasing expectations, increasing urgency and intensity in a way that's productive. Uh, and I think that it's something, if you're an operator building a business, you have to read this book. It's incredible. Awesome. So that brings us to the close of rapid fire. Just a couple of things now. So tell us a little bit about 186 ventures, portfolio performance and current focus. And I mean, you're a investor founder now, so investors are also founders in their own way. So what are your short-term and long-term goals with 186 ventures? So, I mean, so in terms of performance, uh, we're early in the fund cycle. Um, so we started investing out of it in September, October of last year. So it's way too early to tell how it's performing. Although we do have our portfolio companies are growing in, in revenue and users and so on. Um, and then, you know, in terms of short to long term, I mean, I think we, we want to continue to back the best founders. Uh, and we're certainly working hard to develop the right relationships, but at the same time to pick the right companies and partner with companies that we can be helpful. So the long term strategy is taking that short term uh, model and making it scalable and institutionalizing various things at our firm that will allow us to offer the same level of quality experience for founders, the same level of quality diligence, making sure that we're checking right, right boxes and that we're also getting involved with the right investors on our end because we have you know, investors just like companies have investors, startups have investors. And uh, thinking about who the right people to partner with as we grow the firm is also very important. And lastly, team, building out the team. We have a team to build ourselves. Um, but yeah, that's the short and long-term arc, I guess, awesome. fun strategy. Great. So, Joseph, if you were to give one piece of advice to young Joseph, what would that advice be? Take big shots sooner. Uh, it took okay. me a while to figure out that failure is okay. Uh, I mean, I, I learned pretty young, I would say, but I, I, you know, I think it's always younger that you can learn to be okay with not being the best at stuff. You just got to try different things. And you have to try really hard. Uh, and you just have to iterate. Um, I would say, yeah, try big things out sooner because it's, it, there's a bit of anxiety that comes with thinking about you're growing up and you have to make sure you, you know, you get a good job or whatever, you have stability, but life is so long, you know, um, depending on for, for some of us that in the grand scheme of things, you know, you have a long way to, to go to fix things, right? You know, even if you mess up young many times, it's okay. Things will be fine. Okay, great. We're going to take audience questions because of the paucity of time. We'll just take a bunch of them here. So there was a question from a very early stage founder. She's asking, what are some of the tips or advice that you will give to a startup at an ideation stage? Um, test things out quickly. So you will always convince yourself that uh, you need to build the best quality product before you bring it to market and before customers see it because first impression matters. Customers, they don't have a memory. You just need to test things out. Uh, get it out there, whether it be in the form of a very simple web page that you can spin up in a week, in a, in a, excuse me, a weekend, in half of a day. Or think of even just a form of questions 
there's always lightweight ways you can validate or invalidate a business thesis. Um, and you'll always think that there's no way you can do it. There's always a way you can do it. Try to just get to market as quickly as possible and get customer feedback in the door soon, sooner than later. Great. There's another question uh, about how do you think about operationalizing and scaling a networking value-add approach? I'm not sure. I'm assuming that means, I think that was asked earlier when I was talking about the 186 expert network. Um, Mm -hmm. We, well, we have a, it's just, it's just kind of old, old fashioned networking. I mean, I think you need, the prerequisite is you need a quality base. Uh, and I, we were pretty fortunate where our base comes from our years of whether being a founder or operator at a high growth tech company or investors that we rubbed elbows with and being plugged into the startup community. And then now we just have a process in place that allows us to grow all that stuff out um, and make sure that we institutionalize it well and, and so on. So it's really just uh, thinking of old-fashioned networking process and just doing it over and over again. Then there is a question around safe notes. Uh, Is it feasible to raise two to four million via safe notes? Yes. Uh, I mean, I've seen companies raise 10 million on safes. Okay. And is it like the stage of the company that they are in uh, with which they can raise that much money? Is the safe accepted like at early stage, like pre-CT yes. or are they accepted at a later stage like Series A as well? They are accepted at the Series A as well, although they will, you know, there'll be questions around, you know, why you're only raising on a safe, right? Which probably means a bridge, at least early on is this pre-seed and seed, a bridge and a price round or interchangeable. Mm-hmm. And have you, like, do you have experience uh, with EU, uh, you know, investing in EU or just with your network? Do you think it's feasible to raise money like that in European Union as well? Yes, certainly. I I have a lot of, you know, front peers that invest in Europe that it's a very active space right now, for sure. We would consider a deal in the EU for sure. We have one, only one international deal beyond the US and, and uh, Lagos, Nigeria. Um, and we do anticipate that, whether it be in this fund or future funds, that we, we would you know, invest in EU-based companies. We just probably on those, we like to partner with people who are on the ground there. Awesome. So there was, uh, there's an extension to the previous question that I asked, uh, which is basically when founders are asking for money, So I think while we were talking, the example was that potentially marketing is not a good response. So when people say, when the founders ask for money, uh, what do you think should be the right answer or what should be the right, uh, let's say, thought process for founders to have a breakup in their business plan? And it could be dependent on their state as well. What should be the right way to seek for fundraising? And what... uh, things they should have in place, the proof points they should have in place? Oh, sure. Uh, it's very heavily dependent on industry, but it, um, like there's a difference between angels and VCs too, right? So we're talking mm-hmm. in the context of VCs and typically the proof points are, if I were to make one universal one is, is there something repeatable that capital is the only way to repeat? 
Um, and is it, and, and then of course, is it something that's sustainable as well? Right. Um, and it goes back to the example of if you're just raising money for marketing, uh, is it, you know, do you already have a healthy, you know, organic proof point of why people would use the product anyways? Right. And retention proof points of retention, regardless of industry are huge too. And necessary. I think the sustainability, the growth aspects of the overall business, I think that that's the key takeaway and not just spending, throwing money on marketing. And if you are like the example was that if you're, your marketing is focused on advertisement and if you take away that money, then you don't have organic growth. So those were like, you know, the checks and balances that the founders should think about. So that was just an example, not isolated that don't right, have so the money course. for, if you're building those skills yourself and if you need to buy certain tools or do certain activities exactly. on that, that makes sense. So just have the right balance in your thought process. I think that's what the key message is here. Yes, so, you're right. Another question here is, uh, you mentioned that you have a mentor network and uh, are they like similar kind of uh, mentors for pre-seed and seed stage companies? And why did you think of going to them and what kind of problems do they solve for the founders? So I, um, yeah, so I think, I think we're talking about the men, so the expert network for 186, not yeah. my mentors. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I mean, they are usually founders of these tech companies or senior executives at these tech companies. Um, so I think stage wise, they're not the same, but they're all at a certain level where their feedback and input is informed. Uh, we go to them for diligence purposes, you know, mainly and to learn about different markets and industries. Uh, and then, of course, see if we can be helpful to them. And then problems that we bring to them, it, it centers around the business itself. Like why would they, if they would use a, a particular product and so on. Sure. So I think uh, from if you are a founder and if the question was asked from that standpoint, uh, you can always go to mentors for uh, any problem that you're having, whether it's a product problem or you need to get more growth and you're trying to validate your strategy. You can just bounce that with them, have them as a sounding board. They'll give you the piece of advice and they will even help you with your pitch decks, what have you. So all the puzzle pieces that you have while building your startup, it depends where your problem is and uh, seek mentorship and it's uh, really, you know, people are out there willing to help in their time and just be respectful of that time and make sure that you have done your homework. You, you provided the input so that you can make the most of that time as well. So I think, I hope that would be useful. Uh, there's another question. There are a couple of questions that have come in. If that's okay, just if we'll take a couple of more minutes. Sure. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So there's a question that how much will a partnership with a key company in the U.S. with the 1.5 billion records and millions of users increase their valuation? Their millions of users, potentially their, their users as well, so also potentially there's an overlap and they just need to make sure that they convert them right. And how much should that partnership, how much partnership that give organic users grow the valuation. So yeah. I think they're looking to grow through this partnership yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they're just trying to get revenues and some valuation. Yeah, I would say it, it depends on the nature of the partnership. Uh, I would say most part, is there guarantees in there, right? You know, there are partnerships where, um, 
you know, I'll, I'll give an old example because we were talking about Bill Gates. Uh, you talk about the, the Microsoft partnership, right? You know, once upon a time, they brokered a deal with IBM where mm-hmm. every single IBM computer would ship with a copy of Windows and it'd be an automatic sale. That is a great partnership because you know there's going to be value that comes from it, even if it hasn't launched, because contractually, one of the partners is subject to actually driving value. Most partnerships, unfortunately, that I see marketed are not like that. They are, oh, they're going to put us on the website and we think we're going to get access to some of their users. That will do nothing most of the time for valuation until you start converting. Um, Or unless there's some guarantee of sorts, um, for example, because it's, um, it's all in the conversion and it really depends on is the partner going to help convert. Yeah, I think it's a great answer. But I think getting to have that kind of partnership is very rare and unique because it was like hardware and software and usability for the users to use that hardware. So I guess... I mean, it happens today in software too, right? Like if you're a preferred AWS partner in some things, you're going to get certain access with every AWS sale for sure. But I think, yeah... it, it ultimately too, the only thing I'll add is because it, it certainly can help. It just depends on how committed is the partner to driving usage. It really centers mm-hmm. around that because not all partnerships are created equal. And um, it's the usage that's valuable, not the actual, you know, uh, prospect. Hmm. Interesting. So there's one last question, which is like, what is an effective advisory board uh, set up for a cloud cost system? for a non-tech CFO, what should that look like? We'd have to know more about the current management team's background, but without knowing anything, um, I mean, I would say probably having an advisor that um, has, you know, dealt with digital accounting systems, of course. Um, An advisor that has dealt with even you know, selling um, even prior stage cost systems into large enterprises so that you understand uh, and always have access to, to folks that know what it's like to sell into um, that particular sector or industry. Uh, and then if I always recommend for any tech company, um, you, you know, you need a tech advisor, right? Not for the technology, yeah. but more so for building a tech company. Right. Yeah, that's very, very useful and helpful. Yes, absolutely. So, Joseph, it's been fun talking to you. I know you are on Dudash platform, but when founders reach out to you, what should they consider? And I know that you'll be able to find some amazing startups on Dudash. I'm looking forward to your engagement there. Yeah, for sure. I'm excited to be on on the Dudash platform and uh, look forward to to seeing some of the, the great companies on there. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you everybody. Who, thank you. Thanks, everybody who joined us from different parts of the world. Thank you, everyone. We do this event every month. So looking forward to seeing most of you again next month. Thank you. Fundraising is an event. But what happens before and after that? Qualitative investor relations are the basis for future success. Visit udash.com to learn more. And for more episodes, subscribe to our channel.